That is a beautiful th song. Thanks for introducing it to us. Before I start today's lesson, I have a confession to make. I used to be addicted to soap, but it's okay, I'm clean now. <laughs> hey, I'm here all day. All right, we've been in the book of Revelation, as you know. Uh, chapter 15 was on slate for today, but I got to jump back to chapter 14 to help you better understand chapters 15 and 16. So last week, 14, this week, 15, next week, 14, 15, 16, we put it all together because it goes together so beautifully. Um, we've been dealing with the seven bold judgments just introduced. Revelation chapter 14 ends with God's wrath on people. Revelation 16 opens up with God's wrath on people. So we've got 14 and 16, wrath. But right in between chapter 15 is the praise of God. So I want to start there, and then I'll give you all the background information that you need. Revelation chapter 15. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. I just want to draw your attention real quick to something. He said, something like a sea of glass. Did they see a sea of glass? No. John saw something like a sea of glass. He didn't know what to call it. And even if he knew the name of it, you wouldn't know the name of it. So he's trying to give you a mental picture. He's like an author trying to describe what he saw. So whatever this is up in heaven, we've never seen it before, of course. But it looked to John something like a lot of glass, a sea of glass, and it's on fire. So what does that mean? It's hot? No. He's talking about how it looks. So it's bright? It's reflective? I'm not sure. Sparkly? Not sure. But I wanted you to understand he saw something like a sea of glass. We have to pay attention to the details of the scripture or we misunderstand them. So these people are standing there, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed or manifested. Now, in Revelation 14, 15, and 16, the focus is on two separate groups of people. We've got those who fear God and those who hate God. Those are the two groups. And it goes back and forth between them. And, you know, you can call them different things. There are those who praise God and those who curse God. You'll see those in these three chapters. Those who receive God's praise and those who receive God's wrath. 14, 15, and 16. And then it goes on for a couple more chapters. These two groups of people, both the ones walking with God, singing the songs of praise, and those who are being judged by God, both of them are considered, they're called a harvest in the scriptures. In chapter 14, for those of you who are here, we saw that God called 144,000 Jews out of the 12 tribes of Israel 
to walk with him. And they were called the first fruits. First fruits is a definitive harvest term. And it meant more will come. But it's the idea that I'm telling you that they're using a harvest analogy. And I want to give you an example of where they used it for both the righteous and the judge. So in chapter 14, in verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So we're getting, again, the whole harvest scene. But in chapter 14, with 144,000, it was the harvest of the righteous as the first fruits. Now here, it goes into the harvest of the wicked. Um, I don't know, has anybody in here ever used a sickle? Can I see your hands? Oh, more than I expected. None of you must be from Tucson, because nobody in Tucson knows what one is. It's a harvesting tool. You hold the wheat and you cut. That's what a sickle's for. Uh, the only kind of sickle we know in Tucson is the kind that makes you cold. A popsicle. Icicle. Bicycle. Ah, okay. So it's, a sickle is a tool for harvest. So as soon as it says the one sitting on the cloud has a sickle, immediately your mind goes to, ah, it's a harvest. Everybody would have known that. But before I go more into this harvest thing, there's an expression that's used in verse 14 that presented me a problem when I was studying. And I wanted to try to figure it out. And that's often what I do. When I get to a place in Scripture that I don't understand, I do a little research to see if I can figure it out. Sometimes I can. Sometimes I can't. Here's what concerned me. Remember I told you just a minute ago you have to look at the details? It said, it said um, like a sea of glass, which meant it's not a sea of glass. He's just telling us it's like one. Well, we run into a little problem here because it says we've got one like the Son of Man. So based on what you just taught us, Steve, doesn't that mean it's not the Son of Man? It's like the Son of Man? This expression, Son of Man, occurs 88 times in the New Testament. And I started looking at every instance, and I got bored after 20 or 30 I wanted to make sure all 88 dealt with Jesus. And I'm almost certain they do. But since I didn't look at all 88, I can't say one or two don't. But I'm almost certain they do. 88 times. And every time it says Son of Man, it's referring to Jesus. But one like the Son of Man, that's different. Like. Hmm. What do I do with that, Steve? So I did some research. And I found that expression, like the Son of Man occurs elsewhere in Scripture. So I went to look at it, and I think you'll be pleased with what I discovered. It occurs in Daniel chapter 7. As I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Daniel is known as like the book of Revelation of the Old Testament. Daniel, is, he's got so many visions about the future. So here he is having another one of those visions. So the Ancient of Days, the, the one like the Son of Man, comes before the Ancient of Days. They brought him before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Like the New Testament says, every knee will bow to Jesus. Same thing. And every tongue confess. 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So when we first see this Son of Man passage tied to the Messiah, the like Son of Man passage, there's no, you can't argue it's specifically talking about Jesus. Nobody would argue that point. This is talking about the Messiah. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Everybody will worship him. But then why is he called like the Son of Man? Here's what I've learned. When Jesus was on earth with people, he was the Son of Man. When he's seen in a vision, it said like the Son of Man. Now, Steve, what's the significance of that? I don't know. But I get it now. Just because in this instance it says like the Son of Man doesn't mean he's not the Son of Man. He obviously is. My guess is this. When you have a vision, it's oftentimes mysterious. They don't see something and understand what they're seeing. They almost always have to ask, what did I just see? And the angels will say, well, this is this, that, or the next thing. And sometimes they don't even know. They don't get an answer. They see something. God tells them to write it down. They write it down, but they have no idea what it, what it was talking about. So I think John and Daniel were showing, writing down what they saw, but it was vision-y. So they wrote it down in vision-y language. That's my take on it anyway. So now we understand one like the Son of Man. It's definitely referring to Jesus. Now let's go back to this harvest metaphor, Revelation chapter 14. So then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the white cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand the sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Those of you familiar with the Bible who have been studying it for years, you pretty much know what's going on here. But imagine you're just reading the book for the first time. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Guy gets a vision of a man on a cloud with a sickle? How weird is that? And then he reaps the earth. What's that stand for? You wouldn't know. But if you're familiar with the scriptures, it makes sense. And this end times harvest that we're talking about in the book of Revelation, Jesus ta taught about it. He talked about it several times when he was here on earth as the son of man. Let me show you, for example, one of the places he talked about it. Matthew chapter 13. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. So this is the parable of the sower. And he's explaining the parable. The field is the world and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. If you don't know what tares are, we'll talk about them in a moment. But they're, they're kind of like weeds. Okay. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So he says quite clearly, the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Here we are in the book of Revelation. At the end of days, the one sitting on a cloud has a sickle. And then an angel comes out with another sickle and says, reap. And we'll see in a few moments another angel is going to reap. So this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of this age. 
Jesus said it's going to be at the end of this age. It hasn't happened yet because we're still in that age. A lot of people, you know, they think, well, it was 2,000 years ago. Maybe we misunderstand it. Maybe it's not going to happen the way we expected. Maybe it already happened. No, no. We just have to be patient. The time is coming. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Revelation chapter 15 follows right on the heels of 14. 14 ends with God's wrath. But remember, there's the harvest metaphor. In the beginning of the chapter, we have the 144,000. They're not mentioned again. When chapter 15 is kind of like a flashback. Here's the end result for the righteous. They're in heaven worshiping God while all this nonsense is happening on earth. All this, you know, lawlessness that God is righteously judging. These two groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, are each portrayed as a harvest. And according to Jesus' parable, at the end of age, there's going to be this harvest. Now, in another parable about this end of age, some of his servants came up to him and said, Look, there's weeds with the wheat. Should we pull out the weeds? Tares is specifically what they said. Should we pull out the tares? And Jesus, as Lord of the harvest, said, No, let them grow up together. Because if you rip out the tares, you're going to rip out the wheat too. You can't separate them. But when harvest time comes, we'll separate them then. And I'll take the wheat and gather it into my barn. But the tares will throw into the fire. You can see how it grows. There's no way you could really go through there and separate the wheat from the tares. It's all together. And the tares look like the wheat. I mean, even if they were bright orange, it'd be almost impossible to pull them out because they all grow together. But now that they look alike, there's really nothing you can do. they got to grow up together, the good with the bad. We are in that age right now. We have been so upset with the news lately of what our government is doing. It's the wheat and the tares. We're the wheat, they're the tares. We know what the end's going to be, but right now it's growing up together. As Jesus said, it must. But he's going to gather all things that offend and are lawless and throw them into the fire. This harvest metaphor, it continues, verses 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle, as I mentioned to you. And another angel came out of the altar who had the power over fire. And he cried, he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle. He cried. That's not a good translation. Sometimes I don't understand why people translate the Bible the way they do. Because in our culture... The word cry is only used for somebody who's upset and weeping. Crying is weeping. But in the language of the Bible, crying means to shout out loud, to, to raise your voice. So since we know the word shout and the word cry is used differently today, why didn't they translate it? He shouted with a loud voice and people wouldn't have been confused. Because in the old language, you had the town crier. It wasn't somebody who wept. He was the one who broadcasted news. But we're not using the old language anymore. So, 
It's better to say, another angel came out from the altar who had the power of fire, and he shouted with a loud shout or a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. I looked at the New American Standard Bible just to do a quick reference check. This is about 200 miles. The NIV thing, I said, about the same. All right, this is interesting. What's going on here? First of all, 200 miles. If you drove from here to Phoenix, it wouldn't quite be 200 miles. You have to drive farther. I didn't do the math. Maybe the other side of Phoenix might get you there. I'm not sure. But 200 miles is kind of like the distance from where you're sitting right now to Hermosillo, Mexico. So whatever John is talking about, he's talking about this event that goes for 200 miles. That's big. I wanted to find something on the Internet, like a picture of 200 miles, but we can't see that far. I thought maybe a road that just went off to eternity, because from that perspective, if you're on one side of 200 miles and they're at the other, you'll never see them. You're in another world. So what is going on? The metaphor is about God's, God's harvest at the end of days, as I said. We saw the harvest of the saved started with 144,000. They were the first fruits. And then the harvest of the lost, which is the judgment that we're looking at now. These grapes that are thrown into what the scripture says, the great winepress of the wrath of God. No doubt this is that passage of scripture where the grapes of wrath phrase comes from, from that famous movie and play. It's a metaphor. And it's a very fitting metaphor. The great winepress of the wrath of God. Just like grapes are trampled so that the juice comes out, these wicked will be crushed, metaphorically, under God's feet. This idea of being crushed underfoot, um, I couldn't find any pictures for you. You know, I, I, I do a lot of archaeology stuff, but I'm really limited at the pictures I can get because a lot of them are copyrighted, and since we broadcast on TV, we can't use those pictures without it getting permission ahead of time. There are some sites online that let you use their pictures, but they're, they're limited to what you can get. But let me tell you things I've seen that will help you understand this foot-stomping metaphor. A couple years ago, the King Tut exhibit came to Tucson. There were duplicates of everything, but it looked authentic. They, they did an excellent job making duplicates of everything they found in King Tut's tomb. And one of the things that really got my attention was a pair of his sandals, his shoes, his flip-flops of the day. They're meticulously painted where your feet go. Not the outside, but where his feet, you never see it. What was painted inside? People. Why? Because they were his enemies. And every step he took, he was stepping on his enemies. That was a metaphor. In those days, everybody used it. I've seen um, reliefs on stone with kings literally with their feet on the necks of their enemy. That's what they did. They'd conquer it. They'd throw the king or the general on the ground, and then they'd put their foot on his neck. 
complete domination, complete submission. This idea of putting your enemies under your feet. In fact, the scripture specifically says more than once that God would put Jesus' enemies under his feet. So it's also a biblical metaphor that's used several times. Then there's this detail that causes a lot of speculation. It says that the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs, which I told you was 200 miles. In order to understand this, we have to answer two questions. The first question, exactly what is blood from a wine press? And then the second question, why does it say 200 miles and up to the horse's bridle? So we'll answer the first, then we'll answer the second. What is blood from a wine press? First thing I did is I looked up the word blood to see if it's actually the word blood. And the word blood associated with wine or grapes occurs in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I specifically looked at the Old Testament because that's where the next two references will come from. And it is exactly the same word for blood that we use for blood. Again, in English, that makes sense. Your juices are called blood. A grape's juices are also called blood. So for us in our culture today, blood is just that which flows from our veins. But blood is the juice of anything. The fluids. Are you ready to throw up yet? Kind of gross, huh? I'm not doctor material. That expression, um, blood of grapes, only occurs two times in the Bible. There's a couple more times where, where grapes and, and blood are associated. But the exact phrase, blood of grapes, two other times in the Bible, both in the Old Testament. And this was fascinating. The first one was in a Messianic prophecy. Well, that's pretty cool. Let, let me give you the context. Genesis chapter 49 about the blood of grapes. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Some of the messianic prophecies are difficult to understand, but this is one that most scholars agree on exactly what it means. It says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That means the ruling authority would stay with the tribe of Judah. Until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is an appellation of the Messiah. So it says, the line of Judah will always have the kings of Israel up until the time Messiah comes. That's what it's saying. Now, the very next verse. So we're just told about the Messiah. The very next verse, it says, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So I just found it very interesting that this phrase that is used so rarely in the scriptures, two of the three times, it's directly talking about Jesus, the context of Jesus. At the beginning, in the book of Genesis, the Messiah is coming. In the book of Revelation, at the end, he's come and his wrath is severe. And of course, in, the, in, in between parts, he's saving humanity. And this metaphor is either used for wrath or prosperity. Very fitting. But to make it simple, blood of grapes just means grape juice. It could have been translated that way, the juice of the grapes, but they were being more literal. When Bible translators translate, there's there's usually three types of Bible translations, and they all usually fit into one of these three. There's the kind that's a direct translation. 
That means they, to the best of their ability, are going to say exactly what the Hebrew and Greek says and put it into English, even if putting it into English means we might not fully understand what they're saying because of the metaphors and such. Then there's something called dynamic equivalency. Like a, a, a direct translation would be the King James Bible or maybe the New American Standard. A dynamic equivalency would be the New International Version. That's when the, the, the translators aren't trying to translate directly. They're trying to translate the gist of what it's saying as closely as possible. So they want to give more English words. They want to explain the metaphors. And they might be much more comfortable saying juice of grapes than the King James, which wouldn't like that because the word is blood. Use the word blood. But, they have, but blood means juice. And nobody understands blood, so we'll use juice. That's the dynamic equivalency. And then the third type of, of Bible translation, you just call it, it's a paraphrase. They sum up the general gist of what they think they say, and they give you the gist. The first two are good for Bible study. The third one, not as much. But the third one is good if you just want the big picture. And so sometimes when we're studying the other ones, we lose the big picture because we're all into the details. So I use all three in my studies. But the third, not nearly as much as the other two. So, as I said, blood of grapes just means grape juice. But the metaphor is quite obvious. It's a play on words. Blood, the wine press of the wrath of God, the sharp sickle, the harvest is ready. Jesus said, I'm going to gather the tares. We know exactly what's going on. This is the wrath of God being poured out on humanity. And in this context, it's through war. In other contexts, as we've seen, it's through, you know, angelic plagues and so on and so forth. But this, this is war. So the grape juice comes up to the horse's bridles for 200 miles. What's the grape juice? Blood. It seems to me that what John is seeing in his vision is a war that is so graphic and so huge and so destructive that the blood stain on the planet goes for 200 miles. But it's not just a stain. It comes up to the horse's bridle. Now, that's by their mouth, isn't it? The bridle? I don't have horses. But he says, yeah, it's up by the mouth. Goes, so, how, does that mean that the, the, in this 200 miles, there's like four feet of blood, depth-wise? I don't think so. Could be, but I don't think so. My, my take is it, it's very wet, it's sloshing, and as the horses are running, it's kicking up into their faces. That's my take on it. But I could be wrong. It could be a pool of blood 200 miles long. Either way, the point is, this is... Severe destruction of humanity at the very end of time, before the millennium, that is, that the blood of the wrath of God comes up to the horse's bridle for 200 miles. That passage that I just read to you about the blood and the grape juice, it's more detailed of something that Jesus said back in Matthew 24. Here's what Jesus said. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus said back in Matthew 24, towards the end, things are going to get so bad that if I don't intervene, everybody on the planet will die. That's how bad they'll be. But I will intervene. Now we're seeing a more detailed version of it. There's going to be a war so severe that 200 miles of the planet is going to be filled with blood. Ugh. Can you imagine? 
So here's a summary, just to put it all together. The Son of Man will oversee a harvest at the end of days. The faithful will be gathered into heaven, and the faithless will be gathered together for judgment. That's Revelation 14, 15, and 16. But I thought, Steve, you're really going to leave them with 200 miles worth of blood and send them home with a blessing? <laughs> Got to do better than that, Steve. You don't want to send them out depressed. I'll go home and cry. So what I wanted to do before I close is share with you a Son of Man verse that I memorized back in college. I loved it, and it's been with me ever since. And maybe you'll memorize it because it's short and it's sweet. It is my favorite Son of Man verse in the Bible. It's from Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's my favorite Son of Man verse. Jesus came to die for us. His life was a ransom that paid our debts. He secured a place for us in heaven. But there's something you have to do to take that place. The fact that Jesus died for everybody doesn't mean everybody's automatically saved. There's something we have to do. Let me read to you how Paul put it in the book of Romans. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We have to believe in Jesus. We have to follow him. I like how the context says, confess with your mouth. Why did he put that in there? The point is, you can't be embarrassed or shamed. You can't be half a disciple. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this evil, adulterous, sinful generation, then I'll be ashamed of you in my Father's kingdom. He said, if you aren't willing to confess me before men, I will not be willing to confess you before my Father who is in heaven. He is the Son of God. Don't be embarrassed. We are. We're embarrassed. We don't like to witness because we're afraid people will make fun of us. I'm human. I get it. But we got we to man up. We can't be embarrassed of Jesus. He's the Lord of the universe. We should be proud to serve him. And when people laugh at us, say, man, bad on you. So a friend of mine on Facebook posted one of those things. Give me four words and only four words, your best advice. So I thought for a minute, and I said, trust Jesus, read Bible. Those were my four words. <laughs> and then somebody went back and said, not everybody wants to hear all your beliefs. Not everybody wants to believe like you do. And I messaged back. And I said, I know. It breaks my heart. But I know. She asked for four words of advice. What was I going to say? Order the best pizza? <laughs> Up against the four words I gave, nothing else matters. Amen. None of those other words mattered at all. So she got them. You do the same. You don't have to be rude and in people's face all the time, but never be ashamed of Jesus. And as the days go darker, we've got to be more vocal. Boy, are we going to have opportunity. You know that guy up in, uh, I think it was Colorado, who didn't want to bake the cake for the gay marriage? He lost his court battle, and they're fining him $150,000. <laughs> and in the article, he said, they picked on the wrong Christian. I'm fighting back. <laughs> So we'll see what happens there. <laughs> but we're coming into dark days. I was on a conference call with the Center for Arizona Policy just a few days ago. 
It was for pastors. What do we do now that gay marriage is legal? Because those of us who honor God would never perform one, period. We just won't. It's against God's will, so we won't do it. Can we be sued? Can we get thrown into jail? Here's the answer most of the pastors will give. I don't care. We're not doing it. But if there's something we could do within reason not to end up in jail, that's preferred. <laughs> so they gave us some advice and said, right now, we're protected in our state. That can't happen right now. But even the guy, the lawyer on the phone said, but down the road, you never know. We can't be ashamed to speak up for Jesus. Say what's right, say what's wrong. Because the day's coming when he's going to tread the winepress of the wrath of the Almighty God. And if you really care about those people, you'll warn them, even at the risk of them calling you stupid and making fun of you. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Please join me in prayer. Lord, help me to lead the charge. I don't always do so, but help me to lead the charge. I don't want to be embarrassed about Jesus in this wicked generation. I want to stand tall and stand firm. And I want to be the guy that always speaks up for Jesus. Help me never to be ashamed. Help us never to be ashamed. Teach us, though, Lord, how to use the words wisely with the right attitude, the right approach, and at the right time. That we might win as many people to Jesus as is possible. We do not want his sacrifice to have been in vain. We want the biggest harvest humanly possible. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.